We know the demands on your time are greater than ever. That's why DermDiscovery.com offers providers like you a library of self-guided, relevant, and concise educational content. The best part? It's all delivered by your respected peers. Visit now at DermDiscovery.com. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jim Dorasso, a dermatologist in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm very happy to be talking today with Brad Glick. Uh, Dr. Brad Glick is a clinical dermatologist in South Florida in the trenches seeing patients. He's also the residency director at Larkin Palm Springs, the residency in South Florida, and he's also on the board of directors of both the American Academy of Dermatology and the National Psoriasis Foundation. So he's a busy guy. I've known Brad for a long time, and he does a lot of clinical trials. So Brad, it's great to have you here today. Well, I'm really pleased to be here, and I'm always pleased to talk not only with you, but to talk about psoriasis. It's my, it's my passion. I know that's that's one of your passions. You have several passions, which we talked about. So, Brad, being that you have the inimitable distinction of being the quickest anybody's come back on a Derms and Conditions podcast, talking about psoriasis, and we've had major advances. We, we get a lot better results in treating our patients with many of the therapies that we have and focusing on the biologics. And We've had the development of different biologics targeting different cytokines and different mechanisms in the pathophysiology. But I know there's still a lot of interest and still a lot of use of anti-TNF agents. And can you talk about your perspective on where do these fit in currently in the management of patients with psoriasis? Well, I think they're incredibly important therapeutic agents in our armamentarian. And I think when we speak to our rheumatology and our GI partners, they are the core of their uh, initiation for patients with immune-mediated diseases in their space, and I think for us as well, too. You know, we have to remember that about 30% of our patients with psoriatic disease are going to get psoriatic arthritis, and TNF inhibitors are still the mainstay for treating patients with psoriatic arthritis. Skin disease predates joint disease by as much as 10 years, and so even per the guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology, National Psoriasis Foundation, and even in our current guidelines back from 2019 on biologics from the American Academy of Dermatology and the NPF, TNF inhibitors play a very important role because they're highly effective. They're highly effective in the skin, highly effective in the joints, and not such a minor detail since not an insignificant number of our patients with psoriatic disease have background inflammatory bowel disease. These TNF inhibitors cover the gut as well, at least most of them that we use, whether they're infusions like infliximab, adalidumab, sertolizumab, they're improved for inflammatory bowel disease. And, and we have to take that into consideration because we ask our patients about comorbidities all the time, and IBD is one of them. Do you feel there's any distinction between, you know, obviously infliximab is an infusion and, 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 it, and it has a significant murine component, correct? Uh, yes. But, you know, looking at the the injectable that are injected not by infusion. Can you sort out any differences between these different agents that you see that could be clinically relevant? 
Well, one topic is um, humanized versus human. There's been a lot of debate as to whether, you know, one may work better than the other. You know, it's my experience and I think experience from the evidence-based literature that there probably doesn't make that much of a difference. But what one of the things I think is really important is the possibility, not just of anti-drug antibodies. I think all of these agents have anti-drug antibodies, but lower rates of neutralizing antibodies we do see in some different TNF inhibitors uh, versus others. And I, and I do think that make an impact on therapeutic response. And some drugs, we have to escalate their doses and go from, let's say, biweekly to weekly. And, and there are some TNF inhibitors out there that are probably a little bit more effective where we don't have to escalate their dosing uh, regimen uh, for whether it's psoriatic skin or joint disease is one example. Now, I understand that, you know, psoriatic arthritis is something that can be rel- is relatively uncommon with patients with psoriasis. But one of the concerns I have, and I've looked at it myself, and I think I've gotten better at what to look for and what to ask. But obviously, if we're seeing patients that are coming in with arthritis mutilans and, you know, we're seeing end-stage disease, we really didn't do much to prevent the disease. And, and we have agents that can actually stop the radiographic progression. Do you have any tips on how to pick up psoriatic arthritis earlier uh, when patients have psoriasis? Well, a simple answer is screen at every visit. And um, we need to do that. You know, there was that plus one study that was done by Phil Meese a number of years ago through the North American clinics. And, you know, basically the summary was rheumatologists do a little bit better than we do. In fact, a lot better than we do at assessing the joints. But, you know, in a biologic era, Jim, I, I think that it's taught us as dermatologists to look more. You know, we, we have had successful outcomes in treating the skin with a lot of these therapies. And in using these therapies, I think it's made us a little bit more keen in our physical examination of these patients. So here are the tips. You got to look at the nails, all 20 nails. Look for pits. Look for onychorexis, you know, the grooves in the nails. That's important too. Subungal hyperkeratosis, oil droplet signs. You know, when you see nail changes, these patients who have psoriatic skin disease are three times more likely to have psoriatic arthritis. We can do an exam that simply evaluates the entheses, you know, those areas where tendon and ligament and bone join together. Evaluate those medial and lateral epicondyles. Uh, there's an enthesis right where the, uh, the distal phalanx meets that functional nail unit. That's an enthesis as well, too. And you palpate those areas, and those patients have tenderness. Those are some very simple, quick ways to assess for enthesitis, because you may not see it. You may not see that classical Achilles enthesitis. And you look for dactylitis as well, too. These are some signs of psoriatic arthritis. They're important. And perhaps the most important is look in the retroauricular area. Uh, look in the scalp because patients with scalp disease are four times more likely to develop psoriatic arthritis. Screen at each visit. And finally, at least in my clinic, every one of our psoriasis patients gets an opportunity to fill out a pest sheet while they're in the waiting room. And if three out of those five questions that are asked, and we have to necessarily go through them, but it's an important tool. We have screening tools that we can use very simplistically, takes under five minutes to discuss it with your patients, asking questions like, do you feel stiff in the morning? You have back stiffness. How long does it last? If it lasts more than about 30, 45 minutes till you kind of feel like you don't need oil in your joints anymore, then you may have an inflammatory arthritis in the setting of psoriatic skin disease. These patients may have psoriatic arthritis. And so, you know, there's this mnemonic PSA, pain, P, S, stiffness, A, axial involvement. Just think of these things. Ask about neck and back pain because it's important in these patients. And I find that 
not every patient with joint pain has psoriatic arthritis. We know that about 70% of the time they won't. But if you have a sneaky suspicion that they may have that, well, involve your rheumatology partner. That's a nice opportunity to collaborate. And, you know, these patients are obviously going to be typically seronegative. If you're testing, thinking that they might have rheumatoid arthritis, they'll show up with some of those serologies. But I think rheumatoid arthritis is certainly associated with, with swelling, but pain can certainly be a significant feature where the stiffness that gets better as they move throughout the day. So they're sitting sort of sedentary, even maybe getting out of their car after a 45-minute drive, not necessarily just getting out of bed, that they have difficulty with stiffness and not necessarily pain. Have you found that to be an important question? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I, I do think, circling back to what you're saying, taking what you just said and combining it with looking for those clues, the nails, the scalp the antheses, and that uncommon opportunity that you might see dactylitis, a swollen digit, you've got your story there that that individual may have an inflammatory arthritis like psoriatic arthritis. And as I've gotten better at this, I've actually have picked up some cases that were being missed in patients that were known to have psoriasis that had psoriatic arthritis. And it's a good feeling that you've you're helping patients in that regard because you certainly don't want them to have progressive joint damage. And we have agents that can slow down the progression of the joint disease. Brad, I'm going to take a moment and we'll get back to you, but we'd like to hear a word from our sponsor. To hear psoriatic disease insights from respected voices in dermatology, go to www.dermdiscovery.com. Real peers, real patients, real stories. Hear positive outcomes and battles against psoriatic disease from treatment experts like yourself. So, Brad, I'm glad to see that you're still there to have this conversation with me and you didn't have to run off to do something important with the AAD or the NPF or one of the many things that you do. But we've had newer agents for psoriasis and more are obviously going to come. But when you look at the sequence over time with the anti-TNFs being earlier, and then some of the newer agents coming along that we have, anti-IL-23s, anti-IL-17s. Where do the anti-TNFs actually fit in? And are there any distinguishing features or, or any newer information as to why in a certain situation you might select one over another? Well, I think inflammatory bowel disease is a comorbidity is certainly one of them. And I think that they still, Jim, and, and you can tell me how you feel about this, there's still first-line therapy for patients with psoriatic arthritis. Now, that's not to say that interleukin-17 blockers are, are, are great therapies for um, skin disease and joint disease and psoriatic disease. Uh, we have the 23 blockers, certainly the 12-23 blockers, which I, I think it's clear that the Summit 1 and Summit 2 trials didn't really prove out very well for that to be a, a really a highly effective therapy for psoriatic joint disease. And many of us who had patients who had pretty bad skin disease, we would put them on ustekinumab. And um, their skin would get dramatically better, and then their joints would be unleashed. And so, you know, I, I think that those classes of agents, maybe less so the 17 blockers, I think they are pretty highly effective in treating the joints. But I, I worry about inflammatory bowel disease. It's not insignificant. In my last five years, I've had three cases of inflammatory bowel disease. So they're great drugs. I don't shy away from them. But I say that if I'm concerned about an individual who has background psoriatic joint disease, Sometimes I'll partner up with a rheumatology colleague, but I go to TNF inhibitors uh, first line still. Now, there are some that may debate that. 
And clearly, if there is a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, I'm going to start with a TNF inhibitor every day and Tuesday. Now, I will say that for complete clarity, uh, there is now our first interleukin-23 blocker uh, that is approved for psoriatic skin disease, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, joint disease, and now inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's disease, and that risen Kijimov. So we used to say at the podium, so to speak, uh, TNF inhibitors cover the skin. Most of them cover the skin, the joint, and the guts. And now we do have one interleukin-23 blocker uh, that is approved across those three spaces. But nevertheless, I think we would agree that interleukin-23 blockers are not specifically first-line therapy uh, for uh, inflammatory joint disease and psoriasis. And I think it's also proven that they don't necessarily work that great in axial disease. And the TNF inhibitors, by far and away, we know are approved in spaces like ankylosing spondylitis and non-radiographic spondylarthritis. And so they're highly effective in those settings. And so those patients where you and or your rheumatology partners have suspicion for spine disease, TNF inhibitors are great choices, particularly in the setting where there's a significant amount of skin disease. So, in you know, we have patients that may have started on one biologic and for whatever reason, they're not continuing on it, maybe a coverage situation or they stopped or maybe they're feeling it's not working as well. So when you're thinking about anti-TNFs, being that they came along earlier, I think there's a tendency to think that if a patient had used one of these other agents that came along later, like an anti-IL-17, an anti-IL-20, 12, 23, whatever the case may be, that an anti-TNF would not necessarily be an option in those patients. But I don't really believe, based on some of the literature that I've read, that that's necessarily the case, that there has been some literature on anti-TNFs in patients that have previously been treated with anti-IL-17s and maybe even anti-IL-23s. Do you want to address that particular question? Well, to my knowledge, the SIMPASI-1, SIMPASI-2, and SIMPAC trials for sertilizumab actually included a prior exposure to interleukin-17 blockers. You know, unfortunately, the TNF inhibitors like etanercept, adalidumab, those that we use most commonly still these days, although there's obviously newer agents in our toolbox, those trials were done a long time ago. And so the interleukin-17 blockers for the subjects in their trial, there was not a possibility for exposure. So in the sertilizumab trials, you know, remember, sertilizumab was only approved just in 2018, so it's more recent. There was a reasonable percentage of individuals in those trials that were previously either failed uh, interleukin-17 blockers or had potential side effects from those drugs and were able to go into this particular trial uh, for sertilizumab. And so really, I, from to my knowledge, that's really the only trial uh, where there, there, there's been that, that kind of exposure. And so we can cross, we can go retro. You know, I had a patient, Jim, on Monday in, this, in my clinic here uh, in Margate, Florida, who has tried every single biologic. Her originator biologic was a TNF inhibitor. It was her Tanercept. And wouldn't you know that after exhausting all the biologics, the 17 blockers, the 23s, a premolast, uh, I put her about six months ago back on a TNF inhibitor, and she's actually doing great. Her skin is clear, her joints are good, and I partner uh, with a rheumatologist because I think you'll agree most of the time their dosing regimens are a little bit less frequent than ours. Or, or their, their, their numbers of milligrams, their dosages are a little bit lower. So, right. you know, I, I, if they have got generalized plaque psoriasis, we want to use that approval dose uh, for moderate severe plaque psoriasis. And this woman's doing great. And so we can go retro. You know, I like to think of the TNF inhibitors as um, they may be a little bit lost, but they're not gone. They're still here right. and we're still going to use them. 
And, and we have to remember about them that you know that of what they what they bring to the table and what they bring for a long time. You mentioned about sotalizumab being recently approved. That was for psoriasis, but it was actually approved for psoriatic arthritis and other inflammatory joint diseases for several years before. So there is a long efficacy and safety track record with all of the Absolutely. all of the ones we have available. Absolutely. So, Brad, as we look at the anti-TNFs, and obviously we understand differences with infliximab infusion and some of the considerations there, but what about the other anti-TNFs that are available uh, by subcutaneous injection? What about any differences that may be clinically relevant between those molecules? Yeah, I think one of the things that comes to mind that really separates the injectable products that we use in the office is, uh, uh, we were talking a little bit before about uh, sertilizumab, but it's what's unique about it is that's the only pegylated uh, anti-TNF agent and has that that fab fragment, as we like to talk about. And, and what's unique about that is the pegylation, that's polyethylene glycol, adds to the weight of, of the product. And, and, I, and what it does is it extends its half-life and it increases its bioavailability. So I think that that is particularly unique. And I think the fact that it is bioavailable, um, maybe even a little bit differently as one might think of some of the other products, may speak to its significant efficacy in terms of its POSI-75 responses in the, in the clinical trials. And one of the other unique things about this product is I was, you know, finish up some comments on this, and that is that, you know, because it lacks that FC portion, it doesn't bind to the uh, FCRN receptor, and, and it's probably an appropriate choice for a woman of childbearing potential because less of it, much less, less of it is likely to cross the blood placenta barrier. So what do you think about in terms of biosimilars coming along? I mean, that's a big question that a lot of us have. I, I hear from some of my other colleagues that are using them for other disease states and other areas that they're not exactly sure if they work as well or, you know, they're supposed to. And, you know, that's all anecdotal. Uh, what are your feelings looking at the best information that you have for where we're going to be looking at those agents? There are two trials that were done uh, in, in, in recent years. Uh, one is called the Norswich trial. The other one is the Dambio trial. And I'm not going to go into crystal clear detail on them. What basically they did is they had originator in Fliximab. Uh, there was one trial where individuals had either RA or uh, psoriatic arthritis or psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease. And what they did is the individuals in the trial had six months of branded originator um, Infliximab, um, I won't say the, the branded name, uh, but nevertheless, and then they were switched over to biosimilar uh, infliximab. And the punchline is in whatever the disease state was, these drugs, these biosimilars were all non-inferior. Uh, and then there's the, the Dambio trial, very similar. We had three different disease states, uh, psoriatic arthritis, um, non-radiographic uh, axial um, spondylarthritis, and, and rheumatoid arthritis. And these individuals similarly were treated with uh, branded infliximab, and then they crossed over after six months of therapy and were able to see receive another six months. So it's a one-year study, uh, six months of biosimilar infliximab, and these drugs were, were non-inferior. In fact, the pre-specified inferiority target was about 15%. And if you look at the bars in the trial, they're actually level, they're equal, not superior, but not significantly inferior. And so that meets that benchmark for that trial. So it looks like across the board that they 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 do perform well. Uh, my questions are twofold. Because a biosimilar is not bioexact, 
And it, even though it's made from a living organism, and it may follow a similar pattern in the manufacturing process. The question is, is because it's not exact, will there be more immunogenicity? And there's been immunogenicity studies. There's been evaluations um, of, of a variety of assays uh, looking at neutralizing antibodies, for instance. Um, it, it does appear that they do particularly well there. But, you know, we don't know yet. They've been used for a number of years. Time will tell in our space of dermatology. I think it's mostly our rheumatology and our GI partners that are using them right now. I have not had a personal experience with the biosimilars. I think the bigger issues is... Uh, are they going to live up to what they're supposed to live up to? Not just in performance, because they have to have equal performance and identical safety, right? They can't be unsafe. But moreover, are they going to be cost effective? And time will tell. I don't know if we're sure right now. You know, I had the opportunity to interview Bob Cal from the University of Buffalo uh, a number of months ago. And actually, he's done a lot of work on this. And thus far, across the board, it looks like there is some pretty decent savings around 20%. We'll see. We'll see how it goes in dermatology. My concern, just making some final comments, and this is just my bias, is that you know, it's very nice to have companies that produce these products, that have representatives, that have medical science liaisons that come, and those of us that are interested in education, where we learn. Uh, I think we're going to lose some of that with biosimilars. I think we're going to get a letter from a company saying you've got to switch your patient from uh, adalidomab branded to adalidomab biosimilar or etanercept to etanercept biosimilar. And the question is, you know, the patient's been consistently been on a therapy for years and to switch them is troublesome to me on one part. And, and then basically we lose that connection with some of these amazing companies that we've had the opportunity to connect with over the years for our education, for some of the provisions to the patients. Some of the companies have nurse ambassadors. And I'm concerned that we're going to lose some of that uh, connection and relationship. Yeah, I think it's very important the support we get uh, from our, our colleagues in industry with just the education and how much we've learned because of the information that they all provide. I don't think we should ever, ever take that for granted. I agree. But have there been situations, I think you mentioned earlier, how often psoriasis predates psoriatic arthritis, but how about the opposite? How about the patient that may have joint disease first that's going on? but the psoriatic arthritis has not been diagnosed. And then later they may have manifestations or maybe they have very limited cutaneous psoriasis and they came in and they didn't mention, any, mention anything about it and the clinician didn't see it. So what about that? You know, about for, that situation? Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. Tough question. I, and I think that there's a number of different answers. Number one, I think it's about 10% of uh, patients with psoriatic disease will have joints first. Uh, that means that 80% of the time it's not. You know, for me, my general comment when we start to talk about psoriatic arthritis is screen, screen, screen. You asked some great questions before. You know, how do we identify that? And so I think we just have to be looking for those uh, specific cases where there might be just a little bit of skin disease. And our rheumatology partners struggle with this still sometimes. You know, they're exceptional at evaluating the joints, but they sometimes struggle to find even a little bit of skin disease. And there may not be skin disease, but they got to look in those those places, you know, just a little bit behind the ears. Maybe there's a little bit in the hairline, the umbilicus, the intergluteal cleft, got to separate those cheeks. Um, and, and, and they sometimes will send us those patients uh, and they'll say, do a biopsy. And don't you love it? You know, I almost don't biopsy these patients anymore because it comes back the same thing every time. Spongiotic, psoriasiform dermatitis consistent with 
eczema and psoriasis. I mean, you know, that's the end of being the gestalt. You can't really separate those conditions. But I, I think that those are unique circumstances. I circle back to that PSA pneumotic. We got to remind ourselves to just ask simple questions about the joints. And that doesn't mean that every time someone says, yeah, doc, my back is, 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 is in pain. It gets better throughout the day. Uh, but I just attribute that to my work. Now, they may have serious axial disease. They have neck pain all the time. So, you know, it's like the old adage. If you don't ask, you don't get. If we don't ask some questions, and I think all of us in dermatology need to do two things better. One of them is just ask simple questions that may relate to psoriatic joint disease. And as well, partner up with our rheumatology partners where it is necessary. You know, we have this opportunity with these fantastic systemic therapies, including TNFs, IL-17s, and interleukin-23s, to aggressively treat our patients, to kind of be dermatorheumatologists. But, but I think there are appropriate moments where patients are having resistance to therapy, that it's in time to involve uh, our partners who evaluate these other rheumatic uh, effects of these inflammatory diseases. So, Dad, I've known you a long time. I've I've watched you move through your career. We worked on a lot of things together, and I really think you've done a fantastic job in dermatology. But I'll end with a question: What is next for Brad Glick? Oh, is wow. there anything specific <laughs> in professionally? Not personally, because we might not be able to get into that discussion. <laughs> but professionally, what well, what is next for Brad Glick? I always did want to be a singer, Jim, but. You know, I, I think that for me, uh, 27 years into practice, which is a pretty long time, I figure it's probably another maybe eight, 10 years. What I really want to do is uh, kind of refocus my clinical practice to a little bit more of an emphasis on clinical trials, because honestly, I really enjoy them. Uh, I, I want to maybe have a little bit of different time in the clinic. And I think spending more time, uh, believe it or not, Jim, we've talked about this a lot of time over the years on educating residents. It's been a joy. It is a privilege. And for me, it's worked out very nicely. So I, I think I'll be tweaking a lot of my time in the clinic to uh, other areas that that I really enjoy and maybe, maybe come a little bit away from the grind of clinical practice that I know you experience every day as well. Good. Well, Brad, I've been trying to find somebody that doesn't like you. And so far, I've been very unsuccessful in doing that, <laughs> including your ex-residents that, that have trained with you and ones that are with you now. So thanks a lot. We really appreciate you being on, on with us today. And you have a great day. Appreciate your knowledge and sharing it. Jim, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us. Visit www.dermdiscovery.com for treatment knowledge that goes deeper. Created in partnership with trusted experts in the field of dermatology, this hub goes beyond the surface and dives into the science behind effective treatment of psoriatic disease regardless of biologic experience.